If so, or if not, raise your hand and the man at the soundboard can turn the volume up. Yeah, yeah, good luck with that. So, how's everybody enjoying summer so far? Yeah, it's good to see. So, we're going to be in Matthew. And if you want to turn to Matthew 22, chapter 22, and just kind of stick your finger there, that'd be great. As you can see, the title of uh, this message is, Where is Your Anchor? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for this group of people, your saints, that have gathered together this morning to worship you in song and in prayer and with their lives, Lord. I just pray that this message will speak to each and every one of us according to your plan and purpose in our lives, that, that my words will fade and that you will become just blatantly clear to us in our hearts and our souls, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So what prompted this sermon is due to reading a book by Tozer about the attributes of God. And all I can say is imagine that since the elders are going through the attributes of God in the adult Sunday school class, so obviously that's where my head has been. In this book, there's a section asking the question, why are we not happy? As the text continues, you're asked what it is that makes you happy. What is it that lifts your spirits or cheers you up? What is it that, as I put it, floats your boat? And for many of you, it probably will be a boat. Is it that you married well, you have that job, that new shiny, that you have that job that you always wanted, or maybe you have the best wardrobe you could dream of, or when I can buy that shiny new thing, I'll finally be satisfied. Maybe that's the problem. We have our ambitions and perceived success set on things, or better yet, the acquisition of more and better things. Our confidence and value is placed on things and God. We have our home and God. We have our job and God. We have our physical strength and God. Therefore, we have all our earthly things with God added as a plus to them. This is the wrong approach. And no matter how much you put your confidence and trust in things, you will be dissatisfied and let down. After all, why would we put our trust in the little things that God has to hold together? Our God is so vast and present in all things and yet we put our happiness and value in these little things. In the beginning, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. He didn't make any other creature on the earth or bird of the air in his image. He made man in his image. So you, as a sinner and a Christian, are stuck with the fact that nothing will satisfy you 
but God and him through Christ. You see, we have this big hole in our souls that can only be filled with God. We won't really be satisfied until we hold God in the first position in our lives. And the rest that God permits in our life, we can hold at arm's length and give thanks for it, but it does not dictate our happiness. So this brings me to the title of this message, Where is Your Anchor? Roger presented this theme using an anchor a couple of weeks ago, and I thought it is an appropriate symbol to continue with. So thank you, Roger. I'm sure there are many out there that know how and why an anchor is used. Also, the way that it is used. But for the non-mariner, here is the reason. A ship has a huge anchor, and it needs to hold this vessel in a position relative to the wind and current or waves. Typically, the anchor is positioned at the bow. And for those that are really non-mariners, that's the front. <laughs> this is because a ship is designed to cut through the waves, current, and wind. If an anchor were at the stern, where the vessel is boxier or more squared off, it would create drag and resistance to the forces applied to it and therefore harder to hold in the position and more difficult to adjust to the changing conditions. If the anchor were placed at midships, that's in the center, it would spin wildly and worse yet, if there were an anchor at the bow and stern, it would make the ship susceptible to being hit broadside by a change in the current wind or waves. With the anchor in front, it will drift to a new direction as the conditions change and continue to ride the sea. We will visit this again later in this message. So now, we finally get to Matthew chapter 22, and we'll be looking at verses 15 through 38. Matthew 22, starting at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, 
and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, you have not read what was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So in the first question that the Pharisees asked, it was with the intention of tripping Jesus up. It is a test. You see, the Pharisees had already tried to potentially discredit Jesus before the Romans with the question of whether taxes should be paid to Caesar or not. If Jesus responds as they think he may, then their trouble with him will be over as the Romans will arrest him for speaking against their rule of law. Jesus responds, letting them know he knows exactly what they are attempting to do. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's almost a political question, isn't it? The second question, the next question, is from the Sadducees regarding the resurrection. If they can trip him up here, then the people will see him as a misinformed teacher whose theology is not accurate, and they will walk away from Jesus and his teaching. The question is rather strange about seven brothers marrying the same woman who has no children. What they're referring to is a marriage law that is from Deuteronomy and refers to family lines being kept and making sure widows were taken care of. They tried to trick him with this and how it ties into the resurrection. Again, Jesus shuts them down, and he is not discredited before the people. It's kind of like a strike two, isn't it? Now the third question. The Pharisees hoped Jesus would come up with some new law or teaching that would be above what Moses had written as the law of God, most specifically the greatest commandment in the law. When Jesus answered them with this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It again shuts them down completely. Their attempt to discredit Jesus before the people does not work, and their position of power and authority is still tarnished. The way this commandment is stated is meant to show or through action display the complete love we are to have for our God. The complete love we are to have for our God. 
It is not stated this way to separate the emotion from the action and the thought. Heart in Hebrew is not a reference to emotion, but rather an indication or pointing to the center of our lives. The focal point of all our thoughts, words, and deeds. It says you should love the Lord your God. This love is not the love of emotion, rather the love of commitment, dedication, the love of what is right or noble, despite how you might feel. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind means your life centers around Him. He is at the core of all you do. It is meant to convey how your love of God is to be primary in every aspect of your life. It is self-sacrificing for what is right, for what is worthy. I don't want anyone here to think I'm preaching this without my own soul searching. I'm having a Danism. <laughs> This has really made me think about my love for God. Am I living out my life with a self-sacrificing kind of love? It also makes me think, do we really grasp the overwhelming love God has for us? We all know the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, but do we really know the gospel? 1 John 4.19, you don't have to turn there. We love because he first loved us. God loved us first. If he didn't, would we love him? Would we find it in our souls or heart to develop a love for him? I think the world around us gives us a pretty clear answer to that. We would act with indifference. No real thought or consideration of God, just a constant, constant inward reflection on what would make me happy or feel good. I think the world gives us an example of the first and most serious sin, that being the sin of not loving God. After all, people will... After all, people will revolt as soon as someone begins to impose rules, constraints, and laws on how they are to conduct their lives. If you are living your life strictly for yourself, then the natural inclination is to reject anyone or anything that might impose a different way of living. That means God. Man in an unredeemed state is at enmity that is an enemy of God. 1 Corinthians 16.22 If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That is some pretty strong language. And it is speaking of what? No love for God. 1 John 4.9 the love of God was made manifest among us. Manifest to show or demonstrate plainly, reveal, 
to be evidence to prove. So the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I know most of us know what propitiation is, but I think it's always good to look at what propitiation is. It means appeasement or satisfaction. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross satisfied the demands of God's holiness for the punishment of sin. God's love came to us first in Jesus Christ. Our love for him and others is only as a response to that. Do you see the overwhelming evidence of the self-sacrificing love given because the Father purposed this in the obedience of his Son? Talk about the evidence or proof of God's love for us. He really loved us, didn't he? I think about the songs we just sang. Four of them, or three of them, I'm sorry, spoke specifically of this. I kind of thought, well, I don't have to preach now. <laughs> Let's just sing those songs like five different times. We'll be done. He loved us with his whole being and everything. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He gave us his everything wholeheartedly. And in return, he wants us wholeheartedly. He wants us with our heart and soul and mind. He wants more than just our believing. It says in the Bible that even the demons believe. Are they saved? No. No. He wants our intention and action. He wants us from the very core of our existence. He wants our complete surrender and obedience. Did you notice that the commandment doesn't combine heart, soul, and mind? The three are separated. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It seems that the desire is to emphasize the action of each individually, therefore making the concept take on a much larger scope, or as Dan might say, to broaden the camera lens to increase the picture that we see. So when we look at the greatest commandment and try to grasp the full meaning and our obedience to it, it takes on this sense of an impossible task. And it is. We cannot fulfill this in its entirety, just like the rest of the law. But we are to strive for this level of obedience. This must be a component of Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Let's turn there. Philippians 2.
Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The work out here doesn't mean salvation by works, but to constantly work to bring something to fruition. It means we should constantly strive for obedience as we are being sanctified. The best part is what this says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you. God is in the midst of this. Exodus 20, verse 6, shows his mercy. It says, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy 7, 9, the word I'm sorry, the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We aren't left alone. We aren't left alone to flounder and fail, but we are to have a healthy fear of offending God and the respect due him for who he is. And when we fail, we have an advocate in Christ who clothes us with his righteousness and along with the Holy Spirit enables us to continue pursuing our sanctification through love and obedience. Did you notice in both of these scriptural examples, the first action is those who love me and keep my commandments? Do you ever ask yourself, at what level or capacity do you love God? This is something I've been doing a lot since reading this and trying to put this sermon together. What capacity or level do I love God? Is he worthy of your most obedient and intentional love? The one and only perfect, righteous, holy creator of all things that has shown you how much he values you by giving his son. Of course, he is worthy of all your love. Now, the second commandment following, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's getting hard, isn't it? <laughs> Man, we got some choice neighbors. <laughs> I guess we have a lot of work to do. Remember, the Lord showed his overwhelming love for us first, and as we recognize that we have treated him with indifference, animosity, and hatred, we, by the Holy Spirit, recognize that we need a Savior. Man, I think of so many people in the world that have 
absolutely no consideration and most definitely no love for God. It's, it's astounding. We need someone that will forgive us of the sin of no love for our Father in heaven. We need someone that can redeem us and give us a new heart, a heart of flesh, one that is not only capable but has a desire to love our God. That is why our love is in response to God loving us first. Through this transformation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which brings him... <laughs> Hope that guy gets where he's going. <laughs> so I got to back up. This is why our love is in response to God loving us first. Through this transformation in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which brings with him the, the, bleh, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, then we should live by these things, which is living by the Holy Spirit. Not only live, but walk by the Holy Spirit. And to walk is to actually put these into action in how we live and conduct our lives. Our actions, speech, thoughts, and intentions should fall in line with these. To love God with our everything and then to love our neighbors as ourselves we wouldn't need any other rules. Here's a quote from a commentary on this. The fact that there are laws in the Bible against idolatry means we don't love God the way we ought to love God. If I love God perfectly, I'll have no other idols, right? If I love God, I won't take his name in vain, right? If I love men as I ought to love men, I won't kill them, steal from them, covet what they have, be unkind to them, gossip about them, slander them, or hurt them in any way. You see the point? Everything is summed up in that. Paul spoke of the same thing in Romans 13, 8. 10, if you want to turn there. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not cover, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Turn to Romans 12, 9 through 18. It'll be quicker to get there. Romans 12, 9 through 18. 
The heading in my Bible says, Marks of the True Christian. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This to me would be the fruit of this love for God as it pours out to the rest of our lives according to the way God intends it to. This to me would be the fruit of this love for God as it pours out to the rest of our lives according to the way God intends it to. When I take all of this in, I am reduced to a sinful person in need of a Savior daily. Not only do I need a Savior, I need someone that can help me be a better Christian in the future, and I mean right now, and moving forward. After all, aren't we here as a people set apart? Sojourners in this world, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be representatives of the family of God. Let's look at Romans 12, 1 through 2. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is good and acceptable and perfect? Loving God with my whole being. That means with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind and with self-sacrificing obedience. Ephesians closes with a wonderful encouragement from Paul. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ and love, and with love incorruptible. Love incorruptible, another word might be with sincerity. This to me is the foundation of our faith. To love the Lord our God. When we consider all we have just looked at, we see that it all starts with one, the knowledge that we don't or haven't given God the love that he rightfully deserves. Two, 
We need to be forgiven for this act of indifference and animosity towards him. Three, we need an enabler to give us the guidance and a heart of flesh capable of this self-sacrificing love. And four, we need the desire planted in our souls to to be obedient to our Heavenly Father. So now let's return to the beginning of this message. Where is your anchor? Is your anchor in its rightful place? Where current, wind, waves, even storms won't sink you or make you flounder? Is your anchor at the stern, always looking back, fighting with the changes and forces that approach you, not trusting in the design of the master builder? Or maybe you are the person who casts his anchor to the side at midships. That is like sitting on the fence, constantly tipping from side to side with no sure commitment, trying to keep your options open just in case something better or more attractive might come along. You don't want to be tied down, so you just spin wildly with confusion and no clear direction. Then you have the worst position yet. You're going to have your anchor tied at the stern and the bow at the same time. I'm going to tie myself in a rigid place where no one can move me. I'm not giving in to any threats or worries of coming storms or pending consequences. I know what I'm doing, and I'll do it my way. This is indifference and hatred toward God. Place your anchor in its rightful place at the bow where the maker with his knowledge will keep you able to cut through the changes in current wind and waves. You will ride through the greatest challenges and storms because he knows. Let's pray.